Welcome to the Informed Life. In each episode of this show, we find out how people organize information to get things done. I am your host, Jorge Arango. Today's show is a bit different. Instead of a guest, I'm sharing a compilation of episodes from 2023. This is not meant to be a best-of collection, but an opportunity to highlight some themes that emerged during our conversations throughout the year. This isn't the first time I've done this. I published a similar episode at the end of 2021. What's different about this one is that I used AI to help me pick the themes and what parts of the conversations should be featured in each. I must say up front that the clips we chose to highlight aren't meant to be exhaustive. We had other discussions about these subjects throughout the year. These are just some that stood out. I'm planning to write about that process on my newsletter, if you're curious. For now, I'll just say that while it didn't go as smoothly as I hoped, the AI helped me arrive at a first draft that I could build on. In any case, if you want to learn more about how I used AI to curate this episode, subscribe to my newsletter at jarango.com newsletter. And now, on to the themes for the year. I've selected four to highlight. The first theme is about connecting concepts, which is a somewhat abstract take on a central idea in organizing information, that of relating concepts to other concepts to create sets of ideas. The second theme is about information architecture strategies and practices, which has to do with organizing information for others to use. Whereas the third theme is about personal knowledge management strategies and practices, which has to do with organizing information for ourselves. And the fourth and final theme is about the impact of artificial intelligence in organizing information. These themes aren't surprising. Although my background is in information architecture, much of my attention this year has been on the subject of my new book, Duly Noted, which is about personal knowledge management. And of course, artificial intelligence broke into the mainstream in the last quarter of 2022, so it's no surprise that many of our conversations this year focused on the impact of AI on the organization of information. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get started with the first theme, which is about connecting concepts. By connecting concepts, I mean something that is fundamental to both information architecture and personal knowledge management establishing explicit relationships between pieces of information. Because it's so fundamental, this idea came up in several conversations. In episode 112, Jerry Mikulski told us about how he keeps track of what he's learned using a software system called the brain. Jerry explained how connecting concepts in the brain entails a different way of thinking. Anytime I add something to my brain, which I do, if you do the math... I'm adding 50 or 60 things to my brain every day. I, I have never had the bloggers or t Twitter person's urge of, oh my God, I need fresh content. That's not what's happening to me. What's happening to me is, hey, I'm in, I have a really rich information flow because I curate my email and mailing lists. I curate my Twitter feed and who I follow. So I see way too much interesting stuff every day. And I'm plucking the, the gems from that. I call them nuggets. And I'm putting a link to them in my brain, and then I have to weave them into context. So the moment I decide something is worth remembering, which means putting it in my brain, it, it shifts me into system two thinking. Here I'm going Danny Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. 
And mostly we live in system one thinking, which is our responsive, reflexive reply to everything, where we don't really engage the gears. And one of the things I love about curating the brain is that daily I'm thrust into system two thinking of, is this worth remembering? If so, so yes, what is it? Where do I put it? Because I don't have any orphan thoughts in my brain, at least not intentionally. Everything is is hooked like a Christmas ornament onto some branch, right? And then it's like, okay, so what do I call it? What is it connected to? What can I learn from it? And then I'll, I'll Google the thing some more, and then I'll, I'll weave a little bit. And, and so I'm always doing this little bit of contextual weaving all over the place a little at a time with no particular order. It's extremely random. Um, it's as life hits me, kind of, or as a, the task I set forth for the day or whatever. So when you and I have this podcast, I had set up a node, a thought for this podcast. And I went back to it where I where it, I had connected it to the document you sent me for prep to you. I've got you in context and I put you in a long time ago. Um, so that just refreshes my wet brain immediately. And I can step into the conversation um, like I'm stepping into a, a stream. In our next clip from episode 119, Aiden Helfand tells us about how he adapted ideas from Nicholas Luhmann's subtle cast and approach to knowledge management to suit his own needs. As, as beautiful as this system is, it allowed him to create so much prolific, uh, such a, a crazy amount of stuff. There are two main problems that I have with it, which I had to switch for my conceptual note-making system. Firstly, permanent notes only having one idea, I found made it very difficult to expand upon ideas if you wanted to, right? Because you can only have one tiny little index card. It's very hard to have a lot in, in that. So I changed permanent notes to concept notes, which don't really refer to a singular concept in the sense. I just kind of liked the, the name. <laughs> and the difference is they focus on one idea, but they can have multiple ideas in them, right? So that allows you to have a bit more nuance inside of the, the note itself. And secondly, the other problem with the ZL casting system is it's entirely bottom up mode of thinking, which is a type of thinking where you don't need to come into a learning endeavor with a understanding of how the individual parts fit together. That's a more top-down learning approach. That's what we do in school most of the time is you get the curriculum, you see everything that's going to be given, and you know when it's going to be given. The Zettelkasten system is entirely bottom-up. You just read whatever you want, create individual notes, connect them together, and you don't have that top-down structure off the bat. You have to give it that. So what... I started doing in my conceptual note-making process is giving that top-down structure that was necessary to see the bigger view, which is why I started doing uh, creating notes called maps of content. It's a term from Nick Milo that refers to a note with a bunch of other individual notes inside of it. <laughs> That's a map of content. And Creating that map of content, it lets you see all how all the individual notes that you're taking bottom up 
fit together into a greater whole. So that's my conceptual note-making process. This notion of hierarchical relationships and information versus more emergent structures also came up in episode 120, where Alex Wright mentioned it as one of the themes in his book, Informatica. This really emerged as one of the the kind of organizing themes of the book. As I said, I didn't really go in with a big like hypothesis or thesis or argument I was trying to make. I was really just kind of exploring this terrain. But what emerged over the course of my, my research was there did seem to be this kind of interesting pattern that you see over and over again when these new disruptive technologies emerge. They often seem to happen at this kind of point of conflict between um, network systems that tend to be flat, you know, associative ways of of organizing information. And so, for example, you could think of like um, oral cultures as being very networked, like people tend to know people who know people who know people and information flows in a very kind of loose way through networks of association. And a lot of people think the web is like that, like, or at least the early version of the web was very much just hyperlinks and everything is just kind of a big, you know, bowl of spaghetti that just kind of like keeps going, right? Um, as opposed to more hierarchical systems where things are organized in a kind of top-down way where there's, you know, kind of a, a top-level category and then a subcategory and a subcategory and subcategories under that kind of all the way down. Um, and this became a theme that sort of emerged over time is like there is this kind of interesting dance between these these kinds of uh, th these archetypes, and you can see it over and over again in the kind of tension between, um, you know, for example, if you look at the Gutenberg era, you could say that there was a, a very uh, entrenched hierarchical knowledge management regime that was basically uh, administered by the Roman Catholic Church, where there was really, you know, the the, the knowledge was sort of tightly controlled, and, and, and it was the, the way it was controlled was very uh, closely in, interrelated with the, the organizational hierarchy of the Roman church and the sort of government hierarchy. And, you know, knowledge was kind of handed down, organized into very tightly, you know, constrained kind of categories. Um, and then along comes Gutenberg and, and hot on his heels comes Luther with the, you know, with the Protestant Reformation. And there's a, um, a great book by Elizabeth Eisenstein that talks about this, about how really the you know, the Lutheran revolution was powered by the printing press. And suddenly there was this technology that enabled people to like, you know, uh, publish information outside of the auspices or the, or the, the oversight of the, of the Catholic church. And Luther comes along with his 99 theses and then a revolution starts. And suddenly it's much more of a peer to peer flow of information happening. And the, it became like a kind of paradigmatic challenge to the, 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 uh, the power of the Catholic church and like led to lots of like bloodshed and revolution and all, all kinds of things, all kinds of like challenging things happened, but it was a really like a period of intense societal and societal disruption. That was also like a disruption in the, the flow of the of information in the world. You know, in the early days of the web, people made similar claims that, you know, the, the web, this new powerful network technology is going to disrupt the existing gatekeepers and the kind of, um, kind of knowledge bureaus, which I think has turned out to be true. Like it, it created a ton of disruption for, you know, existing um, kind of knowledge brokers, like publishers and 
record companies and broadcast networks, like everything is much more like uh, fluid now. But at the same time, you know, what you also see in this kind of like back and forth dynamic is often the high, some new hierarchies often kind of emerge out of these network systems. And you could say, some people would say that, that we're seeing that now where there was a one point in the web, everything was sort of flat and loose and then sort of a new kind of structure emerges around that. Some people would say that, you know, maybe that has something to do with like the rise of big tech companies. There is this kind of like, you know, tendency for new hierarchical systems to emerge and then they in turn sometimes get disrupted over time by, by new networks. So, so it's kind of started to explore that kind of dynamic a bit. And it's interesting since then, I think there've been, there's a really good book um, by Niall Ferguson, The Clock of the Tower, that actually talks about this exact topic of networks and hierarchies. I would definitely recommend. I wish he'd written that book first because it would have been a great reference point for my book. But, um, but you know, I, I think I'm not I'm not the only one to make this argument, but it definitely kind of plays out you know, through, 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 through the narrative in my book as well. In episode 122, Sonke Irons observed that there is a difference between concepts and the words we use to describe them. Being mindful about language nudges us to think about what we're really saying. The difference between concepts and words uh, are extremely important um, because you're, you have to understand um, what you're linking to. You're not just linking to something that happens to have the same word, but you link to something that is actually on a content level relevant for the idea you're developing. And that note you're linking to might not even have the same word in it. Um, it might be discussed with another term or another concept or another word. Um, so it's a system that nudges you constantly to reflect on what you're actually talking slash writing about and any connection that makes sense has to be a connection that is well understood and i myself um try to link in a way that the link is embedded in some kind of sentence that describes the connection so i don't collect random links uh, which quickly become overwhelming uh, after a while but um, that I give myself an account on why do I link to that particular note how is that helpful for the idea I'm trying um, to express the thought I'm trying to develop um, and that gets you quicker into deep work instead of um, the shallow work um, where you more or less just organize um, the ideas. Our second theme can be described as being about information architecture strategies. The key distinction here is that these were conversations that were primarily about organizing information to make it easier for other people to find and understand stuff. In episode 108, Carrie Hayne discussed the practice of content modeling as presented in her and Mike Atherton's book, Designing Connected Content. The book is um, provides a, a framework for publishing digital 
content across any channel. And that involves, um, so it's kind of a five-step process, starting with domain modeling, um, modeling the truth of the, the domain and the subject area that you're working in, and then the content model, um, which is the content that the organization wants to represent um, in, in various ways. And then um, designing the content based on that structure that you've defined in the models um, and building the, the content management system, the content repository to, to enable that, and then designing the interfaces and the navigation um, to showcase and and the content and the reason for being, <laughs> you know, to to serve the user needs. We try to break things down in so people can understand why and and how uh, using using the chunk chunking instead of blobs um, makes things more sustainable and future friendly. So things don't have to be disposable. Websites don't have to be disposable anymore um, because you don't have to redo the content every time because it's it's more semantic um, and intentional than just serving one, one website need. A related conversation happened a few weeks later in episode 111 where Andy Fitzgerald told us about structured content. In this clip... Andy explains the use of headless content management systems. A headless content management system is uh, an approach to managing content that thinks about content not in terms of a page in which it'll be published. So there, whereas something like WordPress, uh, you have a form that you enter and that, that content gets published to a page and there's a tight connection between those things. And uh, headless content management system or in um, a decoupled approach to content, you create content as a almost an, an abstract entity uh, that may be published to a page or it may be read by a voice assistant or it may be integrated into a help bot. That's the idea anyway. But the challenge with that, and that I think a lot of headless content management providers, system providers are still challenging or 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 running up against is that when we create content, when it's written content, we use the shortcut to the page. So we use headings, indentations, bullets, all of those things to communicate relationships between pieces of content. Uh, the classic recipe example, if I show you a recipe in a recipe book, you know what a list of which set of content is a list of ingredients, and you know which set of content is a list of steps by the way that they're formatted and the way that they're put together. And the heuristics of the page are the shortcuts that things like headings and invitation and just typographic conventions allow us to do are to create complex relationships between pieces of content. And we do that without knowing that we're doing it because it's common to everyone who reads, particularly who reads in a, in a, in a similar culture in Western culture, say. Uh, but if we, if our goal is to communicate ideas, facts, and concepts, which for most organizations, that's really their goal. It's not to publish pages, it's to communicate information. Given the 
huge amount of content that's now available. And the, the fact that although we can publish a lot more, our capacity to absorb it and make sense of it hasn't grown uh, at all, let alone to keep pace with the amount of content and the amount of information that's being published. We need algorithms. We need the robots to help us figure out what to look at and how to understand it. And those heuristic shortcuts of the way that something sits on a page visually communicates an idea are things that robots are really bad at picking out. So uh, an algorithm knows that I've created an ordered list, but it can't look at that content, not without some advanced processing, and know that that is a list of ingredients instead of a list of steps. In episode 115, Otto Holland told us about his core model, a framework for creating more effective digital products. As an information architect, I've been working with abstractions, structures, navigation systems, hierarchies, and, and actually none of that matters if the user can't find the answer. So the, the answer is, is, is the core. Uh, so, but if you kind of flip the perspective, if you start out with the answer, or uh, not just the answer, it's a hypothesis of what answer the user is after, and you can use that as a starting point. So you kind of flip the perspective, don't start with structures and abstract strategies and, and, and all of that, but just, okay, this is an answer we know the user will want. Let's try to figure out the context around that answer. Uh, what are the user tasks? What are the KPIs? Um, so that's the user tasks and the goals. And, and then look at the customer journey before this contact point and, and afterwards. So that's the inward paths and the forward paths. That's kind of came to me. Um, so, so that's the basics of, of the core model. It's just this simple canvas uh, centered around some core. Uh, it doesn't have to be a web page. It could be actually just about anything, uh, physical, digital, whatever. But we typically with digital products and services, this is about some kind of piece of content or functionality that kind of answers a user task. It kind of fulfills my intention uh, as a user. At the same time, that we reach a, a business objective. So it's kind of in, in the intersection between user experience and, and strategy. Um, so, so that was kind of a, um, uh, you know, an epiphany or whatever. <laughs> and since 2006, I've been working with this model, uh, trying to understand the implications of it. <laughs> And, and uh, the implications are actually quite huge uh, because this is just a very simple, uh, you can say the, the, it's kind of the atomic parts of a user experience. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's the, the smallest parts and, and the user universal parts that everyone can understand. This simple, uh, uh, terms in the, in the core model is you have a user 
the target group. You have, and the user has to use the task. Uh, and the business has a business objective of some kind. So that's the, the kind of the top floor. And then you have a, a main floor, which is then some kind of an inward path, uh, the kind of the previous part of the customer journey. And then it has a forward path. And that's the kind of where you, the rhetoric part, <laughs> how can we kind of steer the user in the right direction through uh you can apply behavioral design and and those kind of of elements and so that's but that's just the structure around it with uh target group user tasks business goals inward paths and forward paths and when you have defined those then you can come back to the answer so you, this is really a diversion. <laughs> uh, so you, you fill out the rest of the canvas and then you come back to the answer. So, so now I have a, a solution space where you can have full freedom within this little structure to find out what kind of an answer is this? What format, what channel, uh, and, 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 and it can, can turn out to be something different than you thought uh, at the beginning. Episode 116 featured the first of two conversations with Bob Kaysenchak about the structure of music. This was a broad-ranging conversation about deep subjects in IA, which can be applied to more than digital products. One of the examples we used centered on a meal that Bob and I shared. The restaurant, by the way, for listeners, was called N7, and it's a French place, kind of slightly off the beaten path in New Orleans, and it was fabulous, and maybe the best wine list I've ever seen, although my tastes are biased. Um, but but that's interesting. Let's talk about that for a minute, because the, the wine list was very extensive um, and presented, though, with very small pages and many, many pages instead of a big book with fewer pages that sort of encouraged, like browsing and flipping through and like experiencing its depth instead of like going directly to what you were looking for which i think is interesting but even if and even if we think of something very simple so we have a we have a restaurant jorge and we have a menu and we have appetizers and we have whatever and we have entrees so we have our list of entrees our entrees usually organized at a restaurant are they alphabetical no they're not alphabetical are they are they like cheapest the most expensive? Well, not usually that either. Usually at the top of the entrees list are your featured or um, signature dishes or the one that you think define either your restaurant or the sort of, um, I don't want to use the word genre, but the, well, John, I'll use it, genre or mode of cooking that you're using. The most um, characteristic or the most uh, indicative dishes are the ones at the top, right? Um like that's a very way interesting way to organize information um, that we don't see in that you could not get away with in a larger environment. No restaurant has seven hundred thousand entrees, so you're not searching JSTOR for uh, your entree. There's a list that you can probably grasp one or maybe two pages, and so the question of how to organize that. So menu design must be a field. Is it a thing? In episode one hundred and eighteen, Maggie Appleton shared insights into her digital garden. While this was primarily a conversation about knowledge management, I was curious about how Maggie structures her public website, where she shares what she learns. 
uh, navigation and structure is kind of one of these design problems in digital gardens I would say we haven't solved yet I think there's a lot of unsolved problems in the kind of design of digital gardens like we can get into even infrastructure problems later that there aren't it's not easy to build one of these mine is built by hand with a bunch of janky code and hodgepodge over the years like it is not something I can just hand to someone else and have them spin up their own version of which which makes me really sad I wish I was a better developer to like be able to enable more people to build these at the moment we just don't have great frameworks or or systems or, or principles for doing it um navigation yeah is definitely one of these problems in that um the problem you describe where you like land on a single page and usually what people do is they put backlinks somewhere either on a sidebar or below the post and these are like pages that link to the page you're currently on and that's really great that gives you something else to click on next right you can kind of go click through and explore um, but sometimes you kind of get stuck on a dead end page. There aren't any links back to it. Uh, and that's when you need someone to be able to jump back out to some sort of global navigation structure, right? Like they need to go to some index page where they can see everything. Um, and if someone has, you know, like a thousand notes on a digital garden, you can't really browse an index page that well. Um, so that's where you kind of have to rely on things like filters, searching, like, you know, our kind of typical um, design patterns we have for searching and browsing information on the web. I wish there were, I wish there were better information architecture patterns uh yeah i think again i'm gonna say this is like an unsolved problem at the moment because the chronological stream gives you a very natural order of where to go next right you're just going to the next post the next post and the dream of digital gardens is that actually you should be seeing the most relevant next content every single time you're on a page because everything is connected by content type and relationships and themes and tags um but I think that there maybe aren't good examples of this being done on many digital gardens because we're missing that sort of infrastructure. We're missing the infrastructure piece and we're missing the kind of best design practices piece. In episode 126, Nate Davis encouraged us to think more deeply about the value that information architecture adds to organizations. As we know over the years, it's been very difficult for a lot of people to articulate information architecture in a way where it's it's tangible to people and and um and practical in some cases and also situational and and i think that it's i wanted to get at that is to help people to situate to say okay this is how i can use someone with uh information architecture chops right or this is how from a designer this is how i can leverage some of the other thoughts and areas of concern that information architecture is considering and maybe uh, improve my UX or UI design game a little bit more because it's like it's more than just these things. And, and that's why I wanted to get at is to kind of um, get the idea out there that information architecture is more than just these popular ideas, which is the more tactical that we see. The third theme this year was about the tools and strategies we use to manage information for ourselves. This is the theme closest to my new book, Duly Noted, which is why I hosted so many conversations about this subject throughout the year. In episode 107, Michael Becker told us about how he manages his personal knowledge. And in this clip, he focuses on writing as a way of thinking. I spent the first 30 years of my career or, you know, and, and frankly, I'd say I spent the first 50 years of my life uh, working in output and focusing in output and working in output tools and basically being told, this is the output I want. So then therefore use this tool to produce that output. 
And, and in some ways that makes a tremendous amount of logical sense. But for me, those tools always led to abject failure. Those tools were always led to me never really feeling comfortable or never really getting there because my brain simply didn't work that way. So, so for example, when you're in a, when you're working in a, in a, what I'll call a, a, a vertical format, like word or uh, numbers, or even Scrivener for that matter, um, you know, what, you know, it, it, it <laughs> and it might sound so contrite and simple when I say it this way, but for 50 years, I struggled when, when I finally realized it was okay for the last thing I wrote to become my introduction, the middle thing that I wrote to become my conclusion. You know, I had such a terrible time with writing and other challenges that in linear software, frankly, and again, I'm embarrassed to say, I mean, I spent the vast majority of my career thinking the first thing I needed to write had to be the first thing that people read, right? Because when, you, you, know, it, you know, no one ever really taught me or I was ever really understood that writing actually is thinking. And I think this is another really important tool. And I got this during my doctoral process when I was cramming for one of my early tests, I was reading a book and I'll remember one day that the author who, and, and try to find them and thank them for this one of those pivotal moments in my life as I read this, this line that said, writing is thinking. And when you realize that writing is thinking, it unleashes this ability that your initial thought doesn't necessarily have to be the one you end with. The, the first thing you write doesn't necessarily have to be where you end with. It's allowed to move it around. And it took me from that point that I read that article, writing is thinking, it took me 14 years to then find the tools that allow me to write in a way that gave me the, the capacity to think in a multidimensional way. Uh, you know, what Bernardo and the com Tinderbox community taught me to term it as metacognition, to actually learn to start seeing the world through metadata. Um, and once you, once you finally get there and you get to that level of abstraction, uh, because, uh, because thinking is also a tool of abstraction. Um, and, um, and, then the, and then the world's your oyster. Speaking of tools, Obsidian has become central to how I manage my personal information, and it also features prominently in Duly Noted. So I was very excited to discuss Obsidian with Nicole Vanderhuben in episode 110. Obsidian is a, an app that is kind of like an extensible knowledge base, and one of the things that it's that people say it is, is a note-taking tool. And that would not be incorrect. It is a note-taking tool. But I think that our traditional way of thinking about taking notes really can get in the way of using Obsidian at its fullest or to, to the most effective way that we can. And I think that it, for me, I kind of look at it as my own personal Google it's like a search engine that only searches my interests and what I've done and what I've thought. And in the same way, it also has the biases that I have. So you have to be able to interject some ways to kind of break out of that bias as well. And the reason that I love it so much, I mean, there are a few reasons, but one is that it is very well suited to a developer's mindset because I work for an open source company. Obsidian is not open source, but 
it still has a lot of that open source feel. So Obsidian itself is not open source, although because it's an Electron app, it runs it runs on in on Electron. You can really inspect a lot of the code, so there's transparency. And then its entire ecosystem of plugins is open source. So I love the idea that if I don't like how something looks, then either there's a plugin for that or I can write one for it. And I also love the idea of modularity. In tech, we have the word composable, which means that instead of having this large monolith that is one application that does everything that you could ever want it to do, maybe it might be better to have composable apps and you choose them that they're best for that purpose and then string them along in a stack. And Obsidian is like that. It works well with other, with other applications and in different use cases. They're not very opinionated. Like I know there are some tools that lend themselves more to academic thinking, like Scrintle or Rome. Obsidian is so freeform. You can use it for whatever you want it to be. We've already featured a clip from Jerry Mikulski in this compilation. But I couldn't talk about knowledge management without sharing another highlight from episode 112. Here, Jerry emphasizes the importance of finding tools and practices that work for you. I said earlier that people like different kinds of tools, and I don't know what the canonical reduced or set of tools is. I don't know if there's six or ten. I don't really know. And that space, that that path of inquiry is very interesting, but I'm not on that path of inquiry. I'm not trying to sort of catalog them and reduce them. Rather, I have this idea that people just need people need to figure out how to find their way to the tool that just resonates for them, right? And some feature will make it work for them, and then they'll be off and running with a with a process or a set of rhythms and routines that work for them. And once they start, sort of, and that's why I think note taking is the simplest starting point for these kinds of conversations. Is like, hey, I ask people, what do you take notes in? <clears throat> and a whole bunch of people have no systematic way. Uh, a few people use Apple Notes on the Apple operating system. And I, I when they tell me that, I grimace and I'm like, so how's that working out for you? And it's like, there's just no power tools around that. You you know, you get little post-its everywhere and, and you're lost very quickly, right? And other people were fans of Evernote or DevonThink or there, there's, you know, all these older tools, Tinderbox from, from uh, Mark Bernstein. <clears throat> and um, so, so people have to find their way to the tool that works for them. And there's a whole variety of tools out there, but um, then then the question is, how do you create a practice that really works for you? And I'm afraid not a lot of us have something like that. And I feel I feel really fortunate because the moment I had the briefing with the Brains founder uh, Harlan Hugh and his then CEO Don Block, um, I was a tech industry trends analyst. That was my day job. And I needed to track who who competes with whom, who invests in whom, what company has what products, uh, what PR company represents which company, all of that kind of stuff. And guess what tool was absolutely perfect for that? It was the brain. And I can I can give you a tour through my brain around the, you know the venture community and the startup community in a way that will like make your head spin and that I can't emulate in any database I've ever tried. And I tried a bunch of other thinking tools and databases and whatever. Can't do it in another tool. I don't know. It just doesn't represent as cleanly. So then what happens is 
I've internalized how to use the brain so that I'm really pretty quick with it. The way anybody using any amplification of human capacity who gets good at it, who, get, who like the 10,000 hours to mastery thing, you just internalize it. So I'm no longer thinking about the tool when I'm busy note-taking and weaving and curating. It just passes through me and becomes a thing. And And when I put something new in my brain and I know that it's kind of in the right place and I just added a little a little wisdom to a little shiny nugget corner of my brain, I have a little hit of oxytocin or dopamine in my head that's like, ah, and that's the addictive formula right there. So uh, off and running. Episode 121 featured a fascinating conversation with former librarian and information architect, Chiara Ogan. I wanted to know how Chiara organizes her personal book collection. Wisely, she recommended starting by considering your motivations and needs. I think one of the first questions to ask is why. So figuring out that motivation, right? Why is it that you have the books? Is it something that really, no, it's just a design aesthetic or you just want it, you know, for status or whatever, which are, there's no judgment on any of the reasons, right? Like that they're all perfectly valid, but depending on what you want, what your why of having these book collections determines what you're going to do with them, right? If you have a rare book collection and you're buying them because it's an investment, you're going to treat them and organize them and take care of them in a very different way than if it's, you know, the shelves of your children's board books that they're going to chew on and spit on and rip to pieces, right? Like it's a whole, it's a different purpose. And so you you might put the board books in a basket on the floor and you're not going to do that with your you know first edition of Jane Austen. So once you figure out your why, that's going to help you figure out those use cases that we were talking about, right? Does it make sense to have the cookbooks, you know, in the office downstairs when the kitchen is upstairs? You know, like how how are you how do you want to live with this is this a working library is it something that you're going to be referencing and if it's a working library you know it's design books that you look things up and be like how do i do a classic classification again how do i you know what's the best user research technique for this like whatever it is like then you need to make sure that your organization and however you have them are going to facilitate you quickly putting your fingers on that information, right? Because books are competing with the internet. And so it's very easy to go to Google and just type, what's the best research method for, you know, evaluating classification systems? And instead of reaching for the polar bear book, information architecture for the World Wide Web, and so which is going to be faster? For me, it was always reach for the polar bear book because it's right above my head. That's where I put it. In episode 125, Carl Voigt shared how he uses Emacs, a venerable text editor, to manage his personal information. But as Carl explained, Emacs is actually much more than a text editor. Okay, from a probably 100,000 foot height, I'd say Emacs is an endless large box of legal bricks where you can take out a handful of bricks, you you might think that they're handy for your personal situation and you combine them in a way you need them. And for everybody else, 
the same box of Lego bricks accomplishes different things. They build different structures out from it. So basically, Emacs is an ELISP interpreter, which is a platform that executes code, which is in a computer programming language, which is called ELISP. It's a very old language, and many people think that it's the most beautiful computer programming language. I have to admit, I'm not that good in programming Lisp myself. I have other programming languages which I would prefer. But anyway, it's very flexible. And probably most interesting thing about Emacs is that you can look up any functionality this thing delivers, learn how it's working, and modify it if you want to your needs. And your modification is working or is active instantly. So you, you don't have to restart Emacs in order to make changes work. You just uh, fiddle with the setup as it is. Uh, it comes with a full documentation of all functions. And out of the box, Emacs is most often referred as a text editor. But that's probably not the whole story because Emacs is also being used for other things like gaming, or I've seen people cutting videos with Emacs, but of course, these are more, more um, uh, strange type of applications, but it subscribes to the fact that, that Emacs is very flexible. And for me personally, it's a knowledge management. It replaced spreadsheets. It uh, replaced word processing. So I'm generating documents, PDF files, presentations, I use it for to-do and project management. And yes, those structures are built from those Lego bricks that help me with my daily life. And it doesn't necessarily need to be like that. So other people, for example, just use it for programming or other people just use it for simple to-do lists. So it scales very well. And the good thing about Emacs is all these vast amount of function that comes along with this platform, they are not in your way when you don't use them. So it's not that when you start Emacs, you're confronted with a uh, hundred thousand of uh, buttons and you only click on two of them and the others are just distracting from you from your work. That's not the case with Emacs. That's the good part. So you can you can start very lean you can use only the most basic functions and be happy with it and never extend your desire of extending your personal setup. Or you can think of, okay, now I've got this thing here, which is helping me with my grocery lists or dealing with my to-do items in business. And now probably it would be nice when I would be able to draw graphics with it, uh, for example, network structures or something like that. And most likely there is already a, a good uh, solution which integrates uh, to Emacs. And most of the time it's org mode, which is an extension of Emacs itself. Uh, so whatever you think you're needing an, a solution for, there's most likely a great solution out there or probably 10 or 20. And you are able to look at them, look at, for example, YouTube videos online. If they look like they would help you and so forth, if they align with your personal requirements, which is very important, 
and then you can decide whether or not you try them and and or try something else when it doesn't work for you. This brings us to the fourth and final theme, the impact of artificial intelligence on how people organize information. The popularization of large language models, or LLMs, is the biggest tech story of 2023, so it's no coincidence that the topic loomed large in our conversations this year. In episode 111, I asked Andy Fitzgerald if AIs might help us compensate for a deficit of structured data in systems with lots of content. Yeah, so uh, that's a great, it's a great question. And it's one that I think comes up a lot. And <clears throat> there are some, certainly some examples where uh, when there is a knowledge model that can be leveraged, machine learning or natural language processing can uh, extract some of that information. I think there are many more cases where uh, an intelligible level of expressiveness has not been shared in a document. And by here, I mean the difference between the work and the document in a particular document. And someone wishes or an organization wishes to extract the expressiveness that's understood but not explicit or can that can't be derived from that document. And in those cases, we just get object failure. I think that the job of structuring and communicating content is going to be around for a long time. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be automated away, uh, in part because if um, if the information isn't communicated in a document in some way, it can't be extracted and it can't be extracted and structured. Uh, and the, let's go back to our recipe list, for instance. If I have two lists of uh, ingredients and steps, I know by looking at them which one is which. It might be possible to train a, a, a machine model to run entity recognition on the ingredients list and identify things that are um, simply uh, food types and quantities and on the step list and identify language elements that are an imperative, identify language elements that, that uh, describe a, a series of things going on over time. Uh, it might be possible to do that. Uh, but here we're looking at a really constrained and really predictable set of information. So recipes are fish in a barrel. Information architects all love to talk about it because they're the easy examples. There's, you're only going to do so many things with the recipe and they're going to have certain types. Um, but when you look at language as a whole, and this is where coming back to where our conversation started, I think uh, by virtue of enjoying thinking about language problems, uh, it, it it invites me to continue exploring this. When you, when you look at the complexity of language, so one of my, um, I have some, some little language um, games or or jokes, I guess, um, little linguistic sort of puzzles. Um, and one of my favorites is time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. What's the machine going to do with that? It is, a, it is a valid sentence. Time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. But it, it, it's, it, it's, it's I, it tickles me. I think it, I like, I like to pick it apart. On a similar vein, 
Bob Kaysenchak and I discuss the impact of large language models on the organization of information. Bob emphasized the difference in scale that current models represent. This was in the second part of our conversation, which we published as episode 117. We could probably talk for hours about large language models, but one of one of the things that sort of occurs to me is that things like Grammarly were already working on this same principle. What was different is the scale. Like Grammarly, the thing about the LLMs is that they have billions and billions of inputs, and we now have the processing power. This is a, a Moore's Law thing, right? Uh, we now have the processing power to do ad hoc on the fly statistical analysis of a huge data set to do predictive text. Whereas that same inferential, uh, inferential bag of words on a, on a, on a corpus technology has existed in auto classification systems and things like Grammarly and other things for a long time. But the scale is you, uh, I mean, if you drew a picture of the scale, like you wouldn't even be able to see the little one, the big one. I mean, it's, they're so disparate in what, in what they're able to do. And it's interesting that um, ugh, I, I don't even I don't even want to like go go in. It's, it's just it's just so interesting the different things that people are trying to get it to do. You know, write me a poem about this in the in the in the style of Carl Sandburg. Like that's not that really that interesting. What's interesting is that you can get it to do executable Python code. <laughs> you can get it to build you a taxonomy and express it in SCOS that's valid and loadable into a system. You can um, you can. Um, and then I think what we're going to see, obviously, as we get to not the generalized model, but a model that someone can bring in-house behind a firewall and train with their own content, you're going to be able to see um, fewer hallucinations and more specific things that someone at an enterprise is going to train to do. What it is not good at is writing prose. <laughs> like that's not and like it's just not replacing writers anytime soon. And I, I, you know, I'm sure, and I have been reading about that academics are struggling with this. Um, assigning essays to their students. I think there's a lot of tells that you could tell when something's been chat GPT. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure that's a massive struggle, but, uh, but it, it, it's just been so interesting the past three, four, five, six months watching every week, people scrambling to make sense of this, what to do with it, how to use it, how not to use it. What is it? What isn't it? And like, there's just, you can't keep up with the amount of content that's coming out. In episode 114, Dan Russell talked about how AIs might change the experience of searching for information. This is a fascinating time to be alive. <laughs> if you are in this field at all, um, I have to admit, even though my background is in AI and I've done natural language processing for, for years, I did not see this coming. I mean, I saw language models coming a couple years ago, but um, I did not anticipate the the breadth and depth to which these things would would work. So it's it's been interesting as as a person interested in information quality and in the depth to which people understand these things to see how it works. So at the moment, large language models like Google's Bard or or Microsoft's uh, uh, Bing, which uses ChatGPT for are changing rapidly. That's the first thing to rec recognize is that if we have this conversation in a year, everything's going to be different. Right now, large language models have a real problem with what's called commonly hallucination or fabrication. They're just making stuff up. The best version of this I've heard is that it's like a cybernetic mansplaining system 
where it's just basically making stuff up to fill the gap. Um, at the same time, it also provides a kind of ability to search and out information in very, very different ways. As an example, uh, I wrote a post recently about searching for words that end in dash core. So earlier you used a prefix ur. So in one week I heard multiple people say something like synth core, synth dash core, or night core, or mumble core. And I thought, wait, if I missed something, what does this core thing mean? And I don't know of any way to find that on Google using traditional search methods. So I turned to, to Google's Bard and I said, hey, tell me about these words that end in dash core. And I gave some examples like you know, mumble core and synth core and so on. And it gave me this lovely little essay about core meaning kind of a design aesthetic or perspective on the world. And then I said, show me 10 more examples of that. And it gave me 10 more examples of words that I had never, ever heard about, like cottage core. I don't know what cottage core is. So I went and looked that up. And it turns out to be kind of a design aesthetic about very comfortable, imagine West of England cottages with moss and wooden shingled houses and et cetera, et cetera. That's an interesting way to access information that wasn't there before. Now, the problem with hallucination, I think, is, is a serious one. So I've also learned from these, these large language models that I died in 1993. I'm, I'm happy to report that that's not true. <laughs> Rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated. Uh, but I think an important point right now is that they're fabulous for doing some kinds of things, but you have to check absolutely everything. I saw one essay, little essay that was written by um, ChatGPT3 the other day where it was 12 sentences long and one sentence was exactly the opposite of the other 12 11 sentences. It was remarkable. It completely inverted the sense of, of what it was saying. So you, at this point, you have to actually check everything. I am optimistic, however, that this problem will be solved. I don't know if it's gonna be in six months or, or two years, but I, I know of ways to, to sort of make this a whole lot better, make the results actually much more factual. Um, there, are, there are a couple of systems out now that actually give citations for all their assertions. There's one called Cite, S-C-I-T-E dot A-I, that if you're a scholar, it's a really nice large language model that's trained on the scholarly literature and will give citations for things you ask. So if you ask, for example, about what are the metabolic processes involved in ATP in, say, lizards, it will give you this nice little essay with citations for everything, which is really remarkable. So I'm optimistic about this. I don't think it's going to undo all the necessity of having some literacy about information, information resources, but it's going to give us a whole new set of tools to look at and craft and understand all the stuff that's out there. In episode 118, Maggie Appleton struck a cautious note about what large language models might do to the credibility of the content we find on the web. Funny to have, I stepped into the AI world about 10 months ago, and it's been a bit of a jarring experience. I mean, for everyone, right? The last six months have been a bit shocking. Um, my 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 like position before language models appeared on the scene was like, we should all publish everything all the time. Publishing your knowledge to the web both opens you up to have relationships with other people, right? I think I've had so many wonderful 
friendships and collaborators and amazing jobs all come through writing on my website and and writing on Twitter. Um, and I would just I would I would like that's you know so invaluable. I, there's nothing I could trade it for. It's just been the best people because it's like putting out a bat signal for like everyone into the same things as you, and they like come running and you're like, oh yeah, these are my people. Um, so I've absolutely loved that. And I couldn't have done that without publishing to the open web and just kind of inviting anyone who wants to talk to me to come come chat to me. Um, and now we're kind of facing this moment where language models are scraping scraping the web for all this text and training on it. Um, and we're not quite sure of the repercussions of that yet. But um, in, my, in my essay I'd written, I was mostly worried about how this will affect human relationships on the web. So the thing that I really valued from publishing so much. Um, and then trust and truth, uh, I think, are kind of up for debate um, because what happens is that now it has just become incredibly cheap to generate content that is being published to the web, right? So like you can get uh, any of the large language models like ChatGPT or Claude or, or any of these ones to just generate like millions of words in, in a couple of minutes and it'll cost you like pennies. And you can you can generate, you know, keyword stuffed articles on anything you want uh, under the sun and publish those to the web. And I think it's still an open question of like what happens to Google search in this world, because we don't quite know how Google's going to respond to this like outpouring of generated content, which is already happening. We have plenty of evidence people are already doing this. But it means that if you search for a topic uh, on Google that otherwise would have led you to someone's personal website with their personal opinion on it, an opinion that is grounded in like a very embodied reality, their experience of the world, who they've read, who they know, you're instead going to all the top results will just be generated content. It's just going to be, you know, rehashed stuff out of language models. And that doesn't mean that it, the content isn't true or it isn't accurate, right? We, we have trained these models to actually be quite accurate, but it, there isn't a human behind it. So you can't have a relationship with whoever's writing these words. Um, and while it's more likely to be accurate and true, it still isn't grounded in reality. Like when it comes down to it, the, those words could be false. And like, but we have no way to validate that. And you have no way to check it. Because you can't contact the person who read who wrote it because no one wrote it. It's like it was it was just generated text. Um, so I think I'm very worried about our ability to connect with one another and like form relationships when when everything you read on the web is no longer has a human behind it, um, and how we stay grounded in like empirical scientific reality. If there's just this kind of explosion of generated stuff, which includes lots of hallucinations, but we don't know which content's been hallucinated and which one hasn't. In episode 126, Nate Davis emphasized the importance of accountability when using AI. While Nate sees AI as an opportunity, he also believes it's important for these systems to be aligned with the needs of organizations. I think there are certain jobs that will be displaced because of the efficiency brought on by automation that, that comes from using large language models and methods for artificial intelligence. Um, I particularly, as it relates to the work that I'm interested in and the, the work that a lot of information architects are trying to get at is what you will find that um, are the, the, some of the challenges for artificial intelligence or, or large language models uh, more specifically is that it is now augmenting or becoming an alternative source for information right um and it's not and it's not uh, uh because of the way that it it technically uh, is is architected it is not able to check itself it doesn't know what it doesn't know 
And as a result, it doesn't, in some cases, in many cases, it doesn't necessarily understand meaning and the nuances of semantics or inferencing in some cases where it matters. I know that there's te- there there's efforts in trying to close a lot of these gaps, but there's there 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 is a an area of I guess what I'm getting at is that there is a level of accountability that will still be that was going actually going to be created, right? And I think a lot of the accountability doesn't even exist today. And so hopefully organizations will realize that in order to be accountable conceptually, right? Or if a statement is made, there has to be uh, that statement that an agent is now making on behalf of an organization has to trace back to clear intent and understanding and making sure that it's connecting back to what is understood in the organization and what is aligned to the organization. And that's a lot of work because you still need people to speak on behalf of the business. Then you also need now to make sure that there are people who are helping, who's tra- who are translating what the business understands into smaller bits and, or chunks of information and content and concepts that can be transformed into data so that uh, and content so that large language models can use that internally in an organization to stay aligned. Right. So there is this alignment issue of accountability that that systems will always have forever until we decide to uh, allow technology to act on behalf of us. <laughs> right. And that it's over then if that ever happens. So um, so I so I do think that especially now that there's going to be there should be more effort in uh, making sure that you have individuals who are thinking about well how do we ins- cons- make sure that what is said by and done by uh, these artificial agents that they're conceptually aligned with the organization and, and that's where we play and it's an opportunity. We're going to close this section with a clip from my conversation with Alex Wright in episode one twenty. Alex understands current developments like AI through a broader lens than most of us, and this gives him an interesting perspective on what might lie ahead. I'm always like very reluctant to try to predict any future that might happen. So I feel like I'm on much safer ground talking about the past. But um, but I will say that the when I wrote the first edition of the book, I feel like we were still in a period of re- relative optimism about the internet. I think there was still a lot of excitement and um, kind of a utopian zeal around what was happening that, oh, this is, this is going to be revolutionary. You know, information wants to be free. We're going to, you know, upend all the old hierarchies and it's going to be this brave new world of all this kind of like new, you know, new businesses and, you know, out with the old in with the new and let's see what happens. And I think, you know, in the, 15 years since then, I think that the the conversations have shifted. You know, I think people have started to acknowledge, uh, you know, the sort of more complex, you know, and sometimes problematic effects of this technology that it has created, you know, some fairly painful disruptions. Like if you look at, you know, what's happened in like the media landscape and a lot of legacy industries, you know, the changes in the, you know, simple example would be like the recording industry or, you know, you could certainly talk about things, how things have evolved in the news industry or beyond just kind of the, 
the media landscape, you know, certainly cha massive changes in like supply chains and, you know, the, glo the global networking of um, manufacturing and commerce. And, you know, there, it's a, it's a complex picture. I, I don't, I think it's oversimplistic to say it's, it's quote good or it's quote bad. Um, it's certainly disruptive. And I think now that people have a much more like, um, sanguine view of, of what's going on that thing you know there are some problematic things that we need to think about and now with the rise of ai everyone's like uh-oh <laughs> what is this going to be all about this could be amazing it could be the end of mankind as we know it like nobody really knows but certainly you know i think all kinds of cautionary tales but also like if you look at the you know take the example of gutenberg like was that a net good for society or was it again like at the time you know, 100 years after Gutenberg, I would say it was a very mixed bag, like people, a lot of like really uh, difficult things had happened. You know, there had been a lot of like societal disruption and warfare and bloodshed. And then I think today, most people would say, oh, that was a good thing for for humanity, probably. <laughs> um, but it's it's hard to say. I mean, I, 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 I'm a bit of an optimist by nature, but I think also it's it's way too early. I mean, we should keep in mind that, you know, even though a lot of folks maybe listening to this podcast have kind of more or less kind of grown up with the internet, it's still a relatively in its infancy. You know, I mean, it's astonishing how quickly it spread, but we're really only what 25 odd years into the, the commercial, the really commercial popular version of the internet. And I, I think we're just at the cusp of, uh, you know, a next wave of things that's going to be really interesting, but I, you know, I, I think it's going to be, you know, historians tend to, and I don't call myself a historian, but professional historians tend to be very leery of like talking in historical terms about things that have happened in the last 20 years. <laughs> Usually you want to get like a good half century between you before you start like uh, really drawing too many uh, conclusive statements about what just happened. So I think we're still in the thick of it. And it's, but it's, it's certainly interesting to see it up close. So there you have it some highlights from the Informed Life podcast in 2023. Again, this episode was partly curated by an AI. I plan to write about that process in my newsletter. Sign up at jarango.com slash newsletter to find out more. And as always, thank you for listening. I hope the podcast has brought you value in 2023. If so, please consider rating us or leaving a review in Apple's podcast directory. The link is in the show description. I look forward to sharing more of these conversations with you in 2024.